many of you are familiar with the work of the Balfour Project. We are, our aim is peace, justice, and equal rights in Israel and Palestine. And the mission statement is acknowledging Britain's historical and continuing responsibilities throughout popular education and advocacy to uphold equal rights for the Israeli and Palestinian peoples to persuade the British government to recognize the state of Palestine alongside the state of Israel. And today, as I said, we've got John, who's been sitting there patiently waiting for me to finish rambling. <laughs> um, John is the executive director of the Alliance for Middle East Peace, ALMA, and the largest, which is the largest network of peace building NGOs in Israel and Palestine. Um, he's bringing with him today over a decade of experience um, leading NGOs concerned with conflict resolution and international development. With a particular focus on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and the, um, and the pivotal role society can play in any lasting resolution. Um, so today, you are going to be talking to us on Northern Ireland and Israel and Palestine. So um, I'm going to hand over to you when it disappear. Anyone who's got any questions, please do pop them in the chat box. Uh, John will not be watching the chat box, but I will be sending him all the comments afterwards. So if you have any comments for him, if you have any questions you don't get around to, he will see them afterwards. But post any questions in there, and um, I will pop back after John's presentation to um, ask you some of those questions. So over to you, John. Thank you so much, Diana, and a big thanks to the Balfour Project um, for inviting me and for everybody for joining. And thank you to Sir Vincent, to Matan, uh, and to John as well. I actually, I spoke about this topic to a group of the, the Balfour Project fellows a few months ago. And I just encourage anybody, we're going to talk about civil society for quite a bit of, of this conversation. Um, if you want to support young civil society leaders, the, the, the young student leaders are part, part of that group were phenomenal. I know the Balfour Project is currently fundraising to support that fellowship. So I would encourage anybody who can to, to try and support it. Some really talented young people from right across Europe, in fact, including quite a few from, from Northern Ireland. Um, so I guess, you know, to set things up, um, you know, there's a, a cliche or a Mark Twain quote about uh, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. And there are a lot of uh, rhymes and common rhythms between what happened in Northern Ireland and in Israel-Palestine over the broad sweep of history. But, you know, I'm going to try and speak for around 30 minutes today. So I'm not going to go down into the very deep roots that both conflicts have. We could have a much, much longer conversation about each individually. But for the purposes of this relatively short discussion and then a conversation over questions and answers, I kind of want to focus on, on the conflict resolution phase of a, really the latter part of the 20th century and to try and see why two parallel peace processes, I know that phrase is quite discredited these days, taking place under US leadership at a similar time in global geopolitics ended up in very different places. And there's lots of reasons for that. Um, and I'm not trying to say that my analysis is the overriding one, but I do think it's an important variable within it. Um, and to sum it up really, it's that the Good Friday Agreement itself came at the end of a deep, robust, incremental, highly engaged community and civil society driven process with the political framework arriving as the conclusion to that. Whereas the Oslo process, one of its flaws, was that it seemed to arrive out of outer space with nobody expecting it, no community preparation, and it collapsed under many of its own contradictions, but also a lack of community support and common understanding of what it entailed amongst both Israelis and Palestinians. And if we look at some of those lessons, I think, about what worked and what didn't uh, 30 years ago now at this point, it can perhaps help to inform some of the questions that need to be answered now in Israel-Palestine. We find ourselves at a really difficult juncture, I think, when the Oslo architecture itself is all but collapsed and it's not entirely clear what is going to replace it. Uh, I just want to, first of all, acknowledge a couple of biases. I mean, the first, and it's nice speaking to a largely British audience because you will recognize this immediately, is that I'm Irish. Uh, so I come at the Northern Irish conflict with some biases related to, to being an, an Irish Catholic who grew up in a nationalist household, but also came of age during the Good Friday Agreement and sort of the, the optimism and the transformation that happened just at, when I was really at my kind of opinion formation age politically in the sort of late 1990s. And the second is that for the last 12 years, I've been working quite narrowly uh, with Israeli-Palestinian peace builders and civil society. Uh, so, you know, I, I come at the Israeli-Palestinian conflict with a civil society centric analysis. Um, and I, I think it, maybe it's important just quickly just to explain uh, further to Diana's introduction who all met bar and what we do. So, so I'm the executive director of the Alliance for Middle East Peace. And as Diana said, we're the largest and fastest growing network of peace builders working amongst Israelis and Palestinians. And we work with 
over 150 civil society organizations in the region, many of whom I think have, have echoes with some of the civil society groups in, in, in Northern Ireland, almost none of whom have received a sort of funding or centrality that was the case in Northern Ireland in the 1990s, which is why we try and increase that cooperation uh, uh, on the ground amongst our members, but also to advocate to governments around the world for far greater investment in this work. And, and one of the things we look at as a case study is what was done in Northern Ireland uh, by the creation of something called the International Fund for Ireland in 1986 which uh, directly invested and leveraged uh, over $2.4 billion for the sort of programs that we'll be speaking about in this discussion. Uh, it's over $40 per person per year for over 20 years. In Israel-Palestine, it's around $2 per person per year. And it was only really started spending at that level after the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin and arguably after the peace process we'll be discussing was, was all but dead. Uh, so with those biases aside, I want to also chat just very briefly about the moment that conflict resolution took place in, in, in the 90s. I, I don't know the age profile of everybody who's on this call. Uh, it's weird, uh, the 90s still seems very uh, recent to, to me, but it's obviously now history. Uh, and it was a historical moment where big, knotty, difficult international problems seem more soluble and they perhaps have done, particularly over the last few years. We had like, you know, the Berlin Wall obviously collapsing in 1989, the Madrid Peace Conference in 1991, which is worthwhile reflecting on. It was, uh, you know, most of the, the states of the region around the table for the first time with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict centered to it. The election of Yitzhak Rabin and the Labour Party and the most left-wing government uh, in, in Israel's history in 1992, the Oslo Agreement in 1993, the end of apartheid in 1994, the election of Labour after a long uh, period of Tory rule in 1997, and then, of course, the Good Friday Agreement in 1998. So it did seem that there was lots of bad things in the 90s too, but it did seem an era when these sort of irresolvable conflicts could be grappled with, could be resolved, and also when civil society and activism could play a central role. Although it's interesting because that was not the, the catalyst or the, the central frame with regards to the Oslo process. And I'd argue that's one of the reasons, only one, why it collapsed in the way that it did. Um, it's also worthwhile reflecting on the troubles on the Northern Irish conflict on its own for one second before we look at it comparatively, because again, for younger people and even for everybody else, when it begins to disappear into history, it's easy to forget just how violent and deeply embedded uh, the, the, the troubles were. I mean, it's nowadays it's a news feature, obviously, because of what happened with the DUP yesterday and the and the, uh, the tensions the Good Friday Agreement has been under, particularly since Brexit. But whatever the imperfect reality you have now, it pales in comparison to how the troubles were for most of the, the latter part of the 20th century. Um, it was one of the most violent sectarian conflicts on earth. We, over the course of the troubles, which, you know, we're talking about sort of the late 1960s through the, the end of the 1990s, you had... Uh, over 36,000 shootings, 16,000 bombings, 30,000 political prisoners, uh, and around 4,000 fatalities. And this is a very, very small population. So if you extrapolate that out, I mean, for example, it's about 2% of the population who were killed or maimed over those decades. So in a UK context, that would be the same as 100,000 casualties. In the US, it would be half a million. So this is an intensely violent, deeply embedded conflict. And I can tell you growing up, and I think most people in Ireland and the United Kingdom felt this way, it was irresolvable. It was going to be with us forever. It was a problem to be managed. It was, the peoples were irreconcilable. And those are things that we hear said about Israel-Palestine quite a lot now, and obviously also heard a lot about through the course of the 20th century. Um, because of the brevity of the, the talk, I'm not going to get into the, the very deep roots, as I mentioned, for both sides, but I'm, I'm willing to, uh, happy to have a conversation about that during the questions and answers part. But it's probably worthwhile looking a little bit on the, on the decades that led up to the conflict resolution era of the 1990s in both the Israeli-Palestinian case and in the Troubles. So in the 1970s, first of all, it was really the bloodiest decade of the Troubles. Uh, it's when the army were deployed in, in Northern Ireland. So we had the British regular army deployed in urban environments in the United Kingdom, uh, and again, that in itself is an extraordinary event. Um, the Bloody Sunday obviously took place. Uh, you had attacks on mainland UK. You had the rise of the provisional IRA from the sort of ashes of the old IRA and a younger generation of Irish Republicans really centering violent resistance and, and terrorist attacks in their theory of change. And then in parallel to that, loyalist paramilitaries who 
Again, increasingly, we're using sectarian violence, including involving collusion with some of the um, uh, the British security services and a very deeply embedded dirty war, essentially, by the mid 1970s. Now, what's interesting, again, the 70s were, were, were the bloodiest part of this. I think in 1973, there were terrorist incidents every 40 minutes for the entire year. So this is a high intensity conflict. And very often in high intensity conflicts, it spurs elite level diplomacy. People see just how out of control events are. And there's an attempt by political leaders and elites to try and find a, a conflict resolution paradigm quickly to graft onto it. In Northern Ireland, this was very interesting because something called the Sunningdale Agreement was, was ironed out by the moderate actors in both the unionist and nationalist communities in 1973. And it's very similar to the Good Friday Agreement. In fact, John Hume, uh, who I think is one of the heroes of this story throughout these decades, he called uh, the Good Friday Agreement, as did many other people, Sunningdale for slow learners, in that it took the next three and a half decades, or two and a half decades rather, for people to catch up to some of the um, uh, the content of it, but also for the communities to catch up to it. And I think there's a parallel between the strategy of Sunningdale, where elites converged on a you know, British stately home to try and forge an agreement and then drop it into the communities who were resisting it. And Oslo, which again took place in secret, uh, arrived, as I said, almost as if out of, out of outer space and with very little preparation for the communities themselves once it arrived. And of course, Sunningdale unraveled fairly quickly. Uh, the sort of more extreme actors on both sides of the sectarian divide worked to undermine it using both violence and political uh, mechanisms. We did see civil society organizations beginning to mushroom in the 70s around the Sunningdale period. I mean, one important one was run by Betty Williams and Murray Corrigan, uh, the peace people it was called. It won the Nobel Peace Prize, but it collapsed because it was essentially almost out on its own, where there was a high penalty to cross cross community activism and violence was deployed against the largely female leadership as well and intimidation. And you had basically by the end of the 1970s, um, the beginning of a, a very sort of grim era, essentially. So the, the, the assassination of Lord Mountbatten in Sligo in 1979, uh, and of course the election of Margaret Thatcher with an incredibly um, tough a uh, set of policies on Northern Ireland, really in distinction to, to her predecessors. Uh, and again, in, in the 70s, there's a couple of other moments of, of overlap. I mean, Sunningdale happened at the same time as the Yom Kippur War in 1973. Um, but then in 1979, when you had Thatcher uh, elected uh, and the assassination of Mountbatten, you obviously also had the, the Camp David Accords. So the Israeli-Palestinian conflict morphed at the end of the 1970s as well. The interstate nature of it from the foundation of the State of Israel in 1948, really changed. Even though it was only Egypt making peace at that point with Israel, Egypt had the largest army, the largest population in the region, um, and it's suddenly been taken out of the geopolitical uh, balance, essentially, as, as a belligerent nation, changed the nature of the conflict. And I, I would argue that from, say, 1980 onward, it no longer was an interstate conflict, although it, it maintained some of the... Um, uh, the sort of architecture of it and certainly some of the uh, the rhetoric, it really became much more centered on the events between the river and the sea and the population uh, in Israel and Palestine. You see, obviously, of course, in the dawn of the 1980s, uh, the, the, the civil war in Lebanon and the Israeli invasion as well, the PLO being expelled to Tunis, and then again, the greater centering of events between the river and the sea. The further the PLO went from Jordan initially, then to Lebanon, then all the way to North Africa, the more events uh, in Israel, Palestine and society there, the civil society groups that might grow up in between the river and the sea began to drive events. Um, and again, that mirrors a little bit what was happening in the 1980s. We had hunger strikes taking place in Northern Ireland in, um, in, in, in prisons. Again, I mentioned we had 30,000 prisoners during the course of the trouble. So and that's another parallel with, with Israel-Palestine, where prisons for Palestinian prisoners became a place of political organizing. Many organizations spread from the prison environment. Many political ideas were cooked up by prisoners and then were tried to, to be socialized among civil society groups, again, in both Northern Ireland and Israel-Palestine. But I think it's fair to say that for the bulk of the 1980s, in both Northern Ireland and in Israel-Palestine, there was a lot of stasis in the conflict. It was grim, there was relatively regular violence, um, but then there were some disruptive events toward the end of the decade and the beginning of, we'll call it the long 1990s, I guess. 
And on the Israeli-Palestinian side, it's fascinating to watch these different dynamics take place at the same time. So first of all, there was um, in 1986 or 87, actually, the, the, the London Agreement, where you had you know, maybe the last gasp of this old interstate analysis of Israel-Palestine, where King Hussein came to London in secret for negotiations with, um, with Shimon Peres, who was the, the foreign minister then in, uh, in the unity government that Israel had. And they essentially brokered a deal whereby Jordan would be the sovereign over much of the West Bank and have a special role in, in, in East Jerusalem. Now, when, when that secret deal was taken back, to Israel, Menachem Begin and the Likud party essentially torpedoed it. However, nine months later, Hussein himself not only disowned the London Agreement, but essentially withdrew any territorial claim or any uh, claim to be acting on the part of at least West Bank Palestinians. Again, nine months after the London Agreement, the big variable that took place in those nine months was the first intifada in the latter part of 1987. Again, initially a very civil society and civically driven organic uprising of Palestinians initially in Gaza uh, and then spreading to the West Bank and to East Jerusalem, taking the PLO by surprise in Tunis and much of the rest of the world as well, and resulting in, in, in a change in the Israeli response, uh, again, a focusing on, um, on what was taking place inside the occupied territories themselves rather than around the wider region. And I think it managed to create some of the dynamics which led later to Madrid and to Oslo, when the dynamics that took place on the streets of the West Bank and Gaza were taken up or arguably co-opted by the PLO toward a diplomatic agenda that wasn't necessarily in keeping with the conversation that was taking place amongst trade unions and, and civil society activists in the West Bank and Gaza. If we look at that same period in the late 1980s in Northern Ireland, you had again John Hume um, working diligently in the United States to change the conversation around Northern Ireland. And it's interesting, diaspora groups in both conflicts played an incredibly important role in framing the political conversation, particularly in North America, and in who they supported and incentivized in both uh, territorial regions, in Israel, Palestine, and in Northern Ireland. For Hume, he had noted that the Irish diaspora in, in, in the United States, which numbers 40 million people, it's one of the largest uh, ethnic self-identifying groups in, uh, in North America, they essentially um, were sometimes incentivizing some of the what he saw as the most toxic behavior in, in Northern Ireland, um, often raising money for guns and for weapons and to uh, sort of justify or further incentivize uh, violent actions in Northern Ireland. He went and lobbied and advocated um, with some of the leading lights in the Irish American community at a civic stage. And also in Congress, there was uh, four members of Congress who were called the Four Horsemen and essentially drove Irish-American policy in Capitol Hill. And he made the case, again, both to those civic organizations right across the United States and to those political leaders, that the way in which Irish-American solidarity should be expressed needs to be by incentivizing a real peace process, by taking the, um, the luxury or the benefit of not being in the conflict as Irish Americans, and using that to try and incentivize the, the better angels of those who are living there themselves. Uh, and he made the case for a big disruptive instrument, a fund that could help to support civil society organizations in Northern Ireland to try and prevent the collapse that we saw of, of um, Mairead Corrigan and Betty Williams group in the 70s, uh, the peace people, by creating a larger infrastructure and network uh, and connecting it both to the US, the, the Irish diaspora in the United States, but also directly to US capital support. So as the Anglo-Irish agreement was coming together, which was very, very much an interim agreement uh, between Ireland and, and the United Kingdom, uh, John Hume was, 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 was getting Ronald Reagan to begin to speak out about the conflict. It's also worthwhile noting that Carter was the first president really to address the, the troubles in Northern Ireland because it had been wrapped up in the Cold War great power politics. This is another echo where Israel-Palestine is often used as um, a vehicle for larger geopolitical conflicts. The same was true in the Cold War era for Northern Ireland, but that began to morph and change towards the late 1980s uh, as the Cold War was, was, was coming to a close, now we know retrospectively, uh, and Reagan, began to identify a little bit more with the Irish-American community, recognizing some of the political upsides, and helped to create the International Fund for Ireland. Interestingly, President Biden 
who was a member of the Senate at the time, a member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, is one of the few politicians still around who, um, who helped to bring the International Fund for Ireland into being. As I mentioned, it created you know, and leveraged over $2.4 billion of investment in those sort of programs over the next 25 years or so. And what's interesting then is as we move into the 1990s, if you would ask somebody in 1991, let's say, as the Madrid conference came together, which of these two conflicts is likely to be resolved? I'd argue most people would have said Israel-Palestine, even if they didn't think it was likely. They probably thought it was more likely than, um, uh, than, than Northern Ireland was. As we had Madrid taking place at pretty much the same time, there was mortar attacks on 10 Downing Street by the IRA. In the late 1980s, we had the, the Brighton bombing. Uh, the attack on um, uh, the Tory party conference in not the late, the early 1980s, 1984. Uh, and actually, just as a quick aside, as how civil society often works in strange ways, um, one, of the, one of the people who lost their lives tragically in that attack was a Tory MP named Anthony Berry. His daughter, Joe Berry, set up a civil society conflict resolution group, which has done some work in Israel-Palestine as well, with Pat McGee, who was the IRA member who had planted the bomb in the Brighton Hotel. And this shows you then how the power of Trauma, loss, and also former combatants can be fused together in, in advocacy and political action in order to try and end the conflict. And that also has some echoes in some of the organizations and groups that are active in, in Israel-Palestine. But coming back to the early 1990s, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we had the Madrid conference in 91 and the, the real pressure that was put on Israel by the Bush administration, the first Bush administration, to participate. And that was important. Again, the U.S. used pressure and leverage on a close ally like Israel to participate in this conference. In many ways, the same sort of pressure was applied on the United Kingdom, a very close ally by the United States, in order to facilitate a real peace process. And we haven't really seen in the Israel-Palestine space since, maybe with the arguable exception of the settlement freeze during Barack Obama's first term, U.S. presidents trying to use that sort of leverage toward a meaningful path toward a peace process. Uh, and it needs to be done in tandem with those sort of civil society engines and vectors that I spoke about earlier. Now, it's worthwhile pausing on the bizarre moment in 1993 when the Oslo Accords appear and reflecting on what preceded it. So before September 1993, it was illegal for Israelis to meet members of the PLO. The Palestinian national flag was banned inside Israel. In Palestine, there was very little sort of uh, day-to-day uh, -day contact beyond the, the, the economic reality and utility uh, amongst Israelis and Palestinians, although interestingly there was far fewer physical impediments between the West Bank, Gaza and Israel than there is today. Uh, but both populations essentially um, were, and particularly their political leaderships, were estranged. Out of nowhere, Oslo seemingly uh, appeared and it was a civil society initiative to begin with. So Ron Pundak and Yair Hirschfeld were two Israeli academics. A Norwegian think tank provided the good offices and the, the structure for it. And, you know, in, in Oslo, over a period of months, they grappled through the, um, the various different issues germane to the peace process. It's also worthwhile mentioning that the PLO was at a historically weak position at this time. And some of that, I think, is probably reflected in, a, in some of what's in Oslo and also what's not in the Oslo records. Now, if we sort of zoom out for a second and look at Northern Ireland at the same time, there was no elite level diplomacy taking place. There was some back channel talks taking place. But what did happen in 1992, running into 1993, were the investments that the Fund for Ireland and diaspora groups like, uh, like Chuck Feeney in North America, the groups they were investing in, multi-million dollar uh, investments, were beginning to, to flower. They were beginning to come of age. They were working together. Something called Initiative 92 was launched which was a citizens forum, cross community of uh, Northern Irish Catholics and Protestants, trying to have open conversations and consultations about what some sort of conflict resolution framework might look like, which was really innovative and brave for the time. It was opposed by most of the political parties. Again, violent intimidation was visited on many of the leaders. And again, in another bit of history rhyming, if not repeating, the Norwegians were involved in creating something called um, the Opstal Commission, where uh, in, in 1993, only a few months before the Oslo Accords appeared, uh, the, the framework that the Initiative 92 group had put together was taken by this, this commission and a grassroots consultation process was set up. So they, 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 they consulted with over 3,000 civil society organizations. Again, you're seeing these mushrooming of groups thanks to the investment that had started seven years earlier. And they began to run events all over Northern Ireland 
asking communities what they wanted, bringing together in a fairly radical way, Catholics and Protestants in the same room talking about their future. That seems normal now in Northern Ireland, but it was really brave uh, and difficult to pull off in the early 1990s. Now, if you were looking at Oslo as it emerged and this sort of you know, civil society initiative in Northern Ireland at exactly the same time, most of the newspaper reportage put an awful lot of more focus for understandable reasons on Oslo. And people really did have a sense, almost fatalistically, that the conflict in the Middle East was coming to an end. But so little of the preparation necessary for that to be the case had been done. Suddenly the PLO, who Israelis had been conditioned to believe were the devil incarnate over the previous uh, decades due to uh, waves of terror attacks and Yasser Arafat being seen essentially as Israel's number one enemy, they were being asked to entrust their security to the PLO. That's a huge leap to suddenly have in the space of days, never mind months or years. And on the Palestinian side, undergoing military occupation in the West Bank and Gaza, suddenly to be conditioned to think that that same occupying military was going to be a security partner for your own forces. And even then, in a micro sense, the PLO, having been in Tunis and having been away from the region uh, for most of them since 1948, for many since 1967, for them to return suddenly, initially to um, to, to Gaza and to Jericho and to build up the institutions of statehood so from, from, from scratch, these were big, heavy lifts without civic buy-in and engagement beforehand. And if you look back on the, the record of the speeches of both Israeli political leaders and Palestinian political leaders at the same time, they, they represented Oslo in very different ways to their populations. They, they accentuated parts that were slight elements or weren't even there in many cases and created senses of expectation in both populations, which were ultimately likely to be disappointed. Still, nonetheless, with all of those failings, it's worthwhile remembering that Oslo was popular when it first emerged, even without that civic preparation that occurred beforehand. Um, in, uh, in 1994, January 1994, so what, three, four months after the Oslo agreement had been, had been announced, 64% uh, of Israelis believed Oslo was going to end in a two-state solution, even though it wasn't in the Oslo Accords, and even though the Israeli government were not saying it was going to go towards a two-state solution. And with that understanding of what Oslo was, 61% of Israelis supported it. Yet one month later, in February 1994, Baruch Goldstein entered the Cave of the Patriarchs in Hebron and killed 29 people, uh, injuring, I think, over 120 people. One of the most horrific attacks in the course of the, uh, uh, the violence, particularly in the, uh, the latter decades of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Now, before that attack, there had been two suicide bombings um, that, that Hamas had launched inside Israel proper. There was now six over the course of the next 11 months. It was a huge wave of violence within a year of the Oslo Accords being agreed. And very quickly, that level of support, just dealing on the Israeli side, first of all, began to dissipate. Um, so uh, I think by January of 1995, so one year after the poll that I quoted earlier, support for a two-state solution had dropped to 35%, it had nearly halved in the space of a year. That shows you how shallow that support had been and how easily overturned it could be by violence. Similarly, on the Palestinian side, the lofty promises of what Oslo was going to entail were not materializing. Settlement growth was continuing. The violence of the Tomb of the Patriarchs did not result in settlers being evacuated from, from Hebron, as many people had urged Yitzhak Rabin to do in the immediate aftermath. And the growth of um, uh, Hamas and political Islam at the same time standing against the Oslo Accords, making the case that uh, the Palestinians had been, had been tricked or been fooled, began to, to, to gather pace. And it's also worthwhile pausing here for a second and looking at these opposite theories of change. So on the, um, uh, the elite side, it was all cooked up in elite conferences, policy papers put together with very little civic buy-in. On the, um, uh, the grassroots side, like when you look at in Israel-Palestine, who was taking that more civil society, incremental, community-driven approach? It was Hamas on one side. It's, you know, it's widely known. They're, they're sort of network of, of clinics and hospitals and schools rooted into communities. It was contrasted to a PLO that was often dismissed as being very aloof and very elite. And on the Israeli side, it was a settler movement who, you know, were desperately unpopular for a period in the 1990s yet we're working diligently every day to create local institutions, to be able to create facts on the ground, that cliche again, and build an inevitability uh, that Oslo was gonna collapse when the elite consensus at the time was that a two-state solution 
was inevitable. Yet they worked incrementally in a real way whilst elites were doing something that was very, very much removed from where ordinary populations were. And then in that second half of the 1990s into, um, into the early part of the last decade, we obviously saw the complete collapse of the architecture of the Oslo Accord. So again, those suicide bombing waves that we spoke about very soon after the, the massacre in the, the Tomb of the Patriarchs, we had the Dizengoff uh, attack in October 1994, over 20 people killed, the Beit Lid attack uh, in January 1995, support for Rabin began to ebb away. And again, there's an interesting note here in Israel-Palestine that's contrary for, for, for Northern Ireland. Rabin and his government, they did a lot of things right. Uh, they made a lot of mistakes also. One of the mistakes I would argue that they made was that they kept themselves at arm's length from the peace camp, the civil society that had been demanding for peace for the Palestinians. They were afraid that exposure to those groups or seen as being allies of them would delegitimize them in the eyes of more nationalist voters. Uh, there's an excellent book, by the way, that came out last year called uh, by, by Sammy Cohen that analyzes the Israeli peace camp. And it's really remarkable to see often how rude the Israeli labor leaders were to the leaders of these groups. And it's worthwhile remembering that Peace Now had brought 400,000 people out on the streets following the Sabra and Shatila massacres in the 19, uh, 1980s. That's 10% at the time, I think, of the Israeli Jewish population. They had a convening power that was would have been able to, uh, to be used by the Rabin administration if it had been harnessed. But again, there was that fear to do so. Uh, and, you know, in a, in a very sad sort of poignant note, the moment that Rabin finally embraced the peace camp was on stage uh, at Rabin Square when he was assassinated in November 1995 and when I think the, uh, the Oslo process really retrospectively can be seen to have collapsed. Um, so kind of fast forwarding slightly because I can see the clock, we're uh, into 1998 when uh, Benjamin Netanyahu first of all had won the, the prime ministerial election in 1996 after inciting against the Oslo Accords and against uh, President Rabin, and building again a civil society ecosystem of organizations which have only grown more powerful since, very, very well funded, very, very um, disciplined in the tactics and the strategy that they deploy, and focused upon taking apart the Oslo Accords and making a two-state solution uh, unviable. Um, and that sort of uh, marriage from the elite political level down to those civil, civic actors I think has some lessons for the left to learn. When the political elite is very aloof from civil society, it ends up alone when it becomes under attack. Um, and, and I think, again, looking at the counterpoint, the Y River Accords were agreed in 1998. BB flew back from DC. They were never really implemented at all. It was meant to be withdrawal from Hebron and from other parts of the West Bank. Happens at almost exactly the same time as the Good Friday Agreement is, is, is agreed in, in Northern Ireland. And you can see the civil society that had been invested in from the late 1980s, pushing political leaders to take risks they didn't want to take. Jonathan Powell, Tony Blair's chief uh, negotiator, said that the International Fund for Ireland was the great unsung hero of the Good Friday Agreement. George Mitchell, who was the special envoy to both Northern Ireland and later to Israel-Palestine, said that he would have hesitated to take the job from Bill Clinton without the capacity that had been built earlier, before the 1990s, that civic capacity. Politicians everywhere are cynical. They respond to political incentives. If you don't have uh, a robust, dynamic civil society pushing them to take risks and chances for peace, they simply won't. And the more extreme actors will be able to monopolize the political conversation. But by 1998, that worm had turned. And we saw the Good Friday Agreement coming about. And what's fascinating is that the architecture of the agreement itself is around something called parity of esteem and around placing the nationalist narrative and the unionist one and the rights to it, to, to so many cultural, linguistic, and political elements that flow from it on an equal pegging. It sounds very milquetoast and vanilla now. It was radical at the time, and the idea came directly from the um, Initiative 1992 and the Opshaw Opsha Commission in 1993. So you can see a through line from those civil society organizations through to the ideas that politicians then co-opted and made their own. More than that, after the Good Friday Agreement was agreed in, uh, in uh, Easter 1998, there had to be a referendum to ratify it. But the politicians were too afraid to lead the referendum. They, many of them endorsed and their parties did the Good Friday Agreement. To, to be out knocking on doors in difficult communities advocating for peace and compromise was uncomfortable for many of those sectarian actors. Who led the referendum? Civil society organizations. 
These groups across Northern Ireland were the ones out campaigning, knocking on doors, holding town hall meetings, and ensuring that 71% of the electorate in Northern Ireland endorsed the Good Friday Agreement. And on a final note, and again, there's some similarities here to the Goldstein massacre in 1994, the single worst terrorist attack of the entire, good, uh, the entire um, troubles took place after the Good Friday Agreement. Only 13 weeks, I think, after the Good Friday Agreement in OMA, the OMA bombing by the real IRA, sort of splinter faction of the IRA. And it was devastating. The same number of fatalities, actually, as, as the, the massacre in the, the Tomb of the Patriarchs, with 29 people killed and, again, hundreds injured. What was interesting, however, is that how that violence, when it was deployed in Israel-Palestine, derailed the peace process and, 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 and incentivized political leaders to retreat to their corners. The exact opposite happened in Northern Ireland where civil society in a cross-community way came out in revulsion against this violence. The sectarian leadership, including the DUP and, and Sinn Féin, came out very clearly in opposition to it. Sinn Féin, some of the most condemnatory language I think I've ever seen them use against Republican violence was, was, was against the Oma bombers. Um, and you saw something cohere there in that immediate aftermath that I think has, has stayed ever since. And I don't want to romanticize or sort of utopianize the situation in Northern Ireland. It's really difficult. And conflict resolution remains difficult. It's something you've got to get up and do every day. It's not a destination that you, uh, that you arrive at. Um, but what's interesting is that for all the political failures, including the collapse of the Stormont Executive a few years ago, um, and some of the civil society unrest that we've certainly been seeing over, uh, over recent weeks, it is those civic actors who are really pushing and incentivizing uh, the peace to be kept, who are doing very brave things at a micro and local level, filling the vacuum very much that I, I think the DUP and Sinn Féin often leave in their wake. And those organizations and entities that were seeded from the International Fund for Ireland in the, 19, uh, in the 1980s are now also helping to form political parties. I mean, just this week, um, we've seen uh, Arlene Foster resign as the leader of the DUP. And that it's interesting, the DUP's vote is beginning to be hemorrhaged, and it's not going to the UUP or other sort of uh, uh, distinctly unionist-aligned uh, parties. The party that is probably most resurgent at the moment is the Alliance Party, which is a joint cross-community political party, many of whom's leaders are alumni of the programs that were seeded by the International Fund in Ireland, who found their political voice, many of the leaders are in their 30s and early 40s, in these sort of programs. And we see that in Israel-Palestine too, but at such a micro level, uh, because we've never funded them at the sort of the level where they can, we know they change lives individually, but to be able to change whole communities and society. And it's worthwhile just finalizing things here before we open up for questions on where we are in Israel-Palestine right now. So it's a, it's, it's a real dead end uh, if we're looking at it from an Oslo perspective. We have 90% of Palestinians who think it's impossible to trust Israeli Jews, 79% of Israeli Jews who think it's impossible to trust Palestinians. And as long as that's true, it doesn't really matter who the prime ministers and presidents are in either society. And under the surface, the youth attitudes are causing the greatest crisis. And we saw this very viscerally last week in the racist violence in Jerusalem with uh, sort of Kahanists and, and, and the Jewish far right marching through the old city, uh, ch chanting death to Arabs, or the TikTok attacks taking place uh, amongst Palestinian and Arab, again, very, very young people against visibly religious Israeli Jews. We are seeing a generation of Israelis and Palestinians who don't remember those in retrospect quote unquote, good days in the 1990s. They only remember the regime of separation that's come about since the, the second intifada, um, the, the, the repeated incidents of war with Gaza. I mean, just imagine the average age in Gaza is 16. So for the, the average Gazan, all they know is living behind a wall and having wars every few years, never having met an Israeli to talk about how they might have a more just or inclusive future. And the same is also true for many Israeli Jews. Uh, again, and the average age in Israel is 29, but most Israelis have never had a conversation with a Palestinian about how they might um, share the land together in a just and equitable way. And these sort of programs and initiatives, they don't end the conflict on their own. They, 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 they cannot achieve peace, but they can create at scale those sort of inclusive conversations. And I think, and I'll finalize on this point, um, you know, for somebody, I, I ran an organization for a long time that campaigned for, uh, for, for a two-state solution. I think everybody looking around now needs to be honest and say that partition looks less likely every day. And for some that's tragic and for others it's a good thing, but it's it, it looks less viable because of the, the spread of settlements, because of the lack of support, particularly amongst young people for that destination. And it looks increasingly likely that whatever political framework Israelis and Palestinians have, be it two states, a confederation or a single state, 
it's going to be not separation, but proximity. Israelis and Palestinians, Jews and Arabs are going to have to find a way to live together in a very similar way to Northern Irish Protestants and Catholics have to, to learn the daily behavior of uh, tolerance and being able to compromise over symbols and political norms in order to make their, uh, their reality manageable and just. And I think these programs in civil society in general terms can help to create the, the foundations and the architecture for that to happen, but they can also create the leaders themselves. We're only socializing leaders now in both societies who know nothing of each other, nothing. They speak in cliches. You listen to a speech in the Knesset about Palestinians, and it's really clear very often that the people giving the speech have never sat down and had a conversation with Palestinians. And the same is often true for some of the, the speeches that you'll hear from, from politicians in the West Bank and Gaza. We have generation now who have grown up in this regime of separation, and it's been at the behest or the allowance of the international community. Now, the United States had the foresight to be able to act in a much more judicious and long-sighted way in Northern Ireland and create those investments that could bear fruit and be able to create the foundations for peace. It's important now, and I really wish it had happened 30 years ago, so we're enjoying those fruits, to do the same in Israel-Palestine, to give that younger generation, number one, the tools to resist the dehumanization, the racism and the extremism that's growing, but number two, to create those institutions that can answer the questions that the previous generation have so failed to do. And I think it's the least the international community owes to Israelis and Palestinians after the lofty promises of the 1990s and beyond. And that's why we at all met, we're very, very proud to have helped to, to advocate for an international fund for Israeli-Palestinian peace, again, inspired by that international fund for Ireland, and to have seen legislation enacted in the US Congress at the end of last year promising $250 million towards these sort of programs. Um, we're now working with the governments of the United Kingdom, the European Union and further afield to create a genuinely multinational framework, pooling not just resources, but also legitimacy. Because the truth is the United States is not seen as a legitimate actor by very many Palestinians um, after recent years. But I speak as a European, the same is true for the European Union for many, um, for many Israeli Jews. So the only way the two main funders in this space can work cohesively on both sides of the green line is by pooling those resources and allowing and unlocking incredibly ambitious multi-million dollar projects that can allow participation in these programs and the creation of these institutions to be a rite, a rite of passage for Israelis and Palestinians rather than a very rare privilege. Again, on its own, it will not create the conflict, end the conflict rather, but it can create a petri dish in the foundations that can allow that next generation to begin to figure out answers to those questions. Um, I know I've covered an awful lot. Again, it's difficult to go deep in any of those uh, individual issues that I mentioned in such a short amount of time, but I hope for the, the rest of the conversation that we have, we can maybe go narrowly on, on any issues that people have any questions on. So thank you again. Um, thanks for that, John. That was um, really, really interesting. Some really interesting points up there. And as you say, we're going to take some questions now. And um, but first, I just want to point out some of some of the attendees. We've had over 200 people listening in live, and the recording and the transcript. The recording will go up on the website hopefully by tonight, and the transcript will go up uh, probably sometime next week. And um, so please do, if you miss any parts or if you want to share it, please do share it. Um, we've got some lovely attendees. Uh, we've got Andy Slaughter joining us today. Hi, Andy. Jenny Tong, um, Lily Gartry. Hi, Lily. Um, Michael Dan, all the way from Canada. Um, we've got representatives from St. John Eye Hospital, uh, Nina Zamaya. Um, we've got Sarah Apps, who you may know from Open Bethlehem and Travel to Palestine, and her husband, Martin Linton, who's Labour MP. And we've got Sui Eng, founder of MAP. So hi, Sui. It's always a pleasure to have you. And uh, Wayne David, um, who's an MP, who will be one of our panelists at our conference. So that's just a, a little sample of some of the amazing people we've got tuning in. Um, we've had loads of interesting comments, loads of um, uh, questions. So I'm going to give you a few of them. I've tried to pick one question on each theme because um, we don't have much time and we've had loads of interesting questions. So. Um, We've got quite a lot of questions about um, one from Magan Singodia, one of the Balfour Project trustees. Why is there such a clear division in Irish people's support in Northern Ireland about Israel-Palestine, um, the Israel-Palestine conflict? I have to admit, I went to Belfast and I remember turning around the corner and walking into an estate where half of the people had um, Israeli flags outside and half of the 
people had uh, Palestinian flags and being quite confused and thinking I got lost. Um, and I was, I was traveling with my Israeli friends and I remember when we took the political black uh, taxi tour and the, the driver was very confused to be driving a Palestinian and an Israeli together. And then I, I remember having to pretend to be impressed by the wall when he showed it to us because we were both like, oh, is that it? Is that it? Is that your wall? Um, but yeah, so um, so why is there that affiliation or that, um, that connection? It's, it's a really good question. I mean, some of it, you know, some of it goes back to the era that I spoke about around sort of the anti-colonial struggles and the sort of the new left from the, from the 60s onwards and the sort of um, the, uh, I guess, crossover between the Republican narrative in Northern Ireland, the PLO, uh, FARC. There was a few different groups that were sort of on that kind of Marxist radical left um, aspect. But I think that only really makes sense for the, the elites in communities. Um, I think for a more general perspective, there is a sense of um, affinity with the underdog. I think it's true in, in, in Ireland in general, and then in the Republican community in uh, and the nationalist community in Northern Ireland, we're seeing sort of a crossover where, you know, there is a sense that in Northern Ireland, there was uh, plantations and settlements that took place where land that was perceived by, by Irish nationalists to be Irish land was taken by people they perceived to be um, foreign invaders. Now, the difference is this all happened centuries ago, and the people living in the area today are both, you know, nationals of the same area with both the same uh, rights and entitlement to the land. So part of it is there and on the unionist side as well. There is sometimes an affinity with the the hardest edge of the settler movement and the Israeli right. And some of it, some of it sometimes comes up in the most bizarre ways. There's actually a weird uh, Orange Order Lodge in Northern Ireland where there's members who think they're a lost tribe of Israel. I've heard some of them speak Hebrew in really a uh, a really, really bad Northern Irish accent. Um, and it's it's sometimes it's adopting the close of another conflict when your own sort of is moving towards resolution. And it can sometimes be that your identity is sort of dependent upon the need for conflict. Um, now, in saying that, I don't want to be judgmental on both sides because there are lots of reasons for affinity. Um, one interesting point is that I don't, I don't know I have any data on this, but I've been told by, I come from a fairly nationalist family, by my dad that um you know back in the sort of early 60s many irish people actually aligned themselves with israel when israel was seen as having been fighting against britain to to found the state in 1947 and 48 and then obviously in 67 and the start of the military occupation the role of the underdog not just for for irish people i think more generally around the world and the centrality of the palestinian experience changed that and i think it's fair to say that today in Ireland in general, and amongst nationalists probably in Northern Ireland, it's one of the most pro-Palestinian societies, I think, in, in, in Western Europe. Um, and I've brought Israelis and Palestinians to Northern Ireland for tours, and they oftentimes find it a bit strange to find these people very far away from the region whose identity is wrapped up in their problem in, in Israel-Palestine. But in saying that, sometimes the solidarity can also be, uh, be expressed in ways that are, that are quite helpful. Uh, and there have been... Uh, uh, incidences of Sinn Féin politicians that I'm aware of playing quite an important role on some internal Palestinian issues around division between Hamas and Fatah and being seen as sort of a trusted intermediary for some of the uh, diplomatic initiatives that the Palestinians have tried to put together in the last two decades. Thanks. Um, we've got a couple of questions and comments. Um, one from Ian Chalmers. Um, I think Tony Greenstein touched on this. Um, but um, comments about Almach's response to the recent reports by Beth Selim and Human Rights Watch um, publicly, um, you know, calling out Israel um, on its apartheid policies. So um, have you, as Almach, responded to this or have you got any comments on it for us now? No, I mean, Almep, we don't tend to respond to those sort of things. We're a network, first of all, of over 150 NGOs. We try and reflect um, uh, our, our sort of network's interest, views, and consensus where, where it agrees. I mean, the exception to that will be the annexation crisis of last year and the Trump initiative, which we, we took, took quite a strong stand against because it's obviously contrary to, to so many of contrary to what our members stand for, which is Israeli-Palestinian equality and, um, uh, and joint political activism. And, and, and those initiatives went over the heads of Palestinians and didn't involve uh, Palestinian agency at all. When it comes to calling the balls and strikes of you know, different human rights reports and things, we, it's just it's simply not our role. What I would say is that um, 
labeling what is there is important. And I, I don't want to uh, take away from that in any way, but also a strategy to get out of it is also incredibly important. And there's, there's none of these strategies should be seen as exclusive of others. So the one around accountability and the, the uh, pursuing of rights and international forums is very, very important. And I would say that it shouldn't be seen as in attention or conflict with the grassroots organizations on, on the ground, we're trying to organize Israelis and Palestinians. In my own perspective, I've seen the international community let down uh, Palestinians and Israeli-Palestinian peacemaking so often that I would try and make sure that no strategy is purely international and that you have uh, a part of it that's wrapped up in activism and political action on the ground. And the other thing for the Human Rights Watch report I wanna say is that Omar Shakir, the author of it, uh, has been accused of some pretty awful stuff in the last 24 hours that I've seen. I just want to say that, like, um, this is a side tangent. One of our members was imprisoned last year in Gaza, Rami Aman, for having a Zoom conversation with Israelis. Omar and Human Rights Watch, more than any other organization, were campaigning for his release. We're doing incredible stuff behind the scenes to make it happen. And I think the way in which he applied the same norms that maybe have, have upset a lot of people around that report. And again, I don't want to get into the terminology on it, but just it's, it's, it's obviously very difficult for a lot of people to hear. I'd like people to remember that when there was an issue where a Palestinian was imprisoned in Gaza for activism with Israelis, which is controversial amongst many Palestinians and Palestinian solidarity activists, Omar applied the exact same moral prism to that problem as he would have if, uh, if, uh, if it was Israel infringing the rights of a Palestinian activist. I think that's, that's important to say. Thanks for that answer. You said I could ask you tough questions, so I'm going to. <laughs> um, we've got a, a question from Ben White. Um, so the fact that the International Fund has attracted support across the political aisle is often presented as one of the main achievements. However, the fund's support include groups like APAC and Conservative Friends of Israel, who regularly denigrate Palestinians and their rights, and who actively work to thwart accountability for war crimes. What is it about the fund do you think that attracts the, those group supports, and what would an organization have to do to have its support declined or disowned? Well, we've never declined any organization support for the International Fund, and it, it's, 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 it's fair to say that it has support on the sort of pro-Israeli right, but it also has to be said that it has support on the pro-Palestinian left as well. It's very unusual in that sense, both within Congress and amongst um, supporting organizations. So for every uh, APAC endorsement, there was also J Street that have endorsed it. Um, you know, we, we have uh, Churches for Middle East Peace who have endorsed it as well. The New Israel Fund have endorsed it. One of the, one of the problems is we've had fewer Palestinian organizations than I would like endorse it. And part of the tension here is, 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 is with BDS, obviously, where we're bringing together Israelis and Palestinians. We think it's incredibly important to do that. And that sometimes gets wrapped up in uh, a conversation around, um, around boycott. Um, so, so, so if there is a little bit of a discrepancy there in that sense, but as legislation in the United States goes, I have never seen a broader tent of organizations endorsing a piece of legislation that has passed ever. Um, and I think to answer the second part of, of Ben's question, it's probably because a lot of people can disagree on final status. Uh, and I'm talking about particularly in the American context here and on various different elements of an analysis of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But when you see the attitudes that young people are coming up with, when you see events in Jerusalem last week, for example, it's pretty hard for people to say that's a good thing. And we have these programs that are demonstrated in study after study to be effective in countering those attitudes and create and disrupting them and creating a very different environment for young Israelis and Palestinians. So it creates essentially a point of commonality between actors who wouldn't ordinarily co-sign the same legislation. And I think that is true in the UK and in Europe as well. What I would also say is of all the organizations endorsing it, it's nobody's top priority. And that's important to say. So it's, it's a very wide concert of people who endorse it but all met by the organization who are, who are pressing it every day. And I think that's part of the problem also, that lots of other initiatives and ideas, uh, they capture an awful lot of energy from, 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 from organizations and from activists. Um, and it's important to try and find these things that some people can agree upon that politically are viable, that can produce uh, funding, and that can also allow some of the other activities and organizations uh, to prosper as well. And I think it's important to not see something like this to be in competition or intention with other priorities from, um, from organizations on the left or on the right. Um, I've got one from Veronica Plowden now. 
Do you think one of the reasons for the difference in outcome was the US um, started in Northern Ireland basically understanding and supporting the less powerful party, i.e. the nationalists, while in Israel and Palestine, they were and are heavily biased towards the occupiers of Israel? Um, so I think the US's position as a mediator in Northern Ireland was far better, far, far better than it was in, um, in, in Israel-Palestine. Part of that is, again, you know, Khaled Elgandy, by the way, you wrote an excellent book a couple of years ago about uh, an analysis of US policy on Israel-Palestine. And again, in conflict resolution theory, the role of the mediator is to try and strengthen the hand of the weaker party in order to create something closer to parity and negotiations, because just in a cold scientific perspective, it's more likely to result in agreement. Um, and, and, and the United States, I think it's, it's not a controversial thing to say that it has never really performed that role um, in the Israeli-Palestinian sphere. And it's one of the big differences, I have to say, in, in how they intervened in Northern Ireland versus uh, Israel-Palestine. And I'd also make a point that some of this is around diaspora activism as well, which is changing, right? So remember what I said about what John Hume led in the like 1980s in Ireland, where how you self-identified as an Irish-American changed from being supporting weapons to being supporting peace groups. I think you're seeing within the Jewish American diaspora, maybe a change in how pro-Israeli activism or how, um, how your Jewish identity relates to things that you are prioritizing politically, that is in transition and changing as well. And it's worthwhile noting, I should have mentioned it earlier, in, in the mid-1990s, when um, Rabin and Yossi Balin were in power, AIPAC were pushing for um, the Jerusalem, I forget the name of the law, but a law that recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, which is what the Trump administration used a few years ago uh, to, 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 to ratify it. And Balin and Rabin asked AIPAC not to endorse it, yet AIPAC did it. So there's sometimes diaspora communities can actually be so far out away from what the governments they're, 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 they're supposed to be in solidarity with are, are pushing for. And I hope some of that can be rebalanced. It's, it's, it's a continuum, right? It's constantly changing. And what people are doing, what they're asking their politicians to do on a daily basis, that really, really matters. And I think the lesson in Northern Ireland is that whilst, whilst the United States intervened in a more sort of um, even-handed way, it wouldn't have intervened at all if not for Irish Americans demanding it. And I think the same can be possible for a U.S. role in Israel-Palestine if organized groups of, uh, um, of diaspora communities, Palestinians, Jews together, like everybody, if this becomes uh, a call to action for an administration, as uh, President Obama said when he was being uh, chastised uh, in his first term for not doing enough on this issue, he said, I can't hear you. Basically, I'm not getting letters from you. I'm not getting phone calls from you. You're not pushing me to do this. But there's other people who are pushing me to take different action on these issues. And I think smart advocacy towards now with the Biden administration being in place can, can move to a more sort of involved and activist position from the United States over the next three and a half years. Thanks for that. Um, I'm going to take the last question now because um, we are um, almost the time, but um, I have said that I will be passing on the chat box to John so that he will be able to read everyone's comments and so forth. Um, I um, this comment has come from Peter Brain, but we've had similar questions on the same, same theme. Um, I would have, I would like a comment on whether two communities can coexist and whether in Northern Ireland they actually do now. It's a great question. Um, so yes and no. Um, so one of the tragedies in Northern Ireland is that more children are being educated in, in sort of uh, segregated uh, schools than was the case before the Good Friday Agreement. One of the flaws of the Good Friday Agreement is that it crystallized power sharing, which was necessary at the time, in a way that sort of pits the communities against each other a little bit. Now that, and that tension is where policy is produced. But I think it's changing. I think what's really interesting, the largest group of people in Northern Ireland are people who are self-identifying as neither Republicans or Unionists. Uh, the largest growing voter in Northern Ireland are non-Unionist party voting Protestants. Um, you have now in Northern Ireland a whole new ethnic identities after immigration that aren't based upon whether you're Catholic or Protestant. And I think the, the civil society capacity that was generated, that helped to deliver Good Friday, that helped to sustain it when politicians failed, that can now be deployed, I hope and think, toward reimagining what comes next. Because I don't think good, the Good Friday Agreement is a final status agreement, it's an interim agreement. And what it's created is the space, historically, politically and socially, for the violence to ebb away, for rooms where conversations can happen to be created. And then I think the next chapter of how uh, all citizens of Northern Ireland, regardless of their ethnicity or religion, 
can share the land uh, with uh, inequality can actually happen and ideas can be generated without immediate pushback and that we have to get through the the challenges that brexit has created which i would not want to diminish in any way but i still think that 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 muscle that resolve that that that's going to be northern ireland's biggest asset in the coming years and i remain optimistic about those questions being resolved it's nice to end on an optimistic note, isn't it? Um, John, thank you so much for joining us. I want to thank you on behalf of everyone that's attended. I also want to thank everyone that attended for attending. Um, as I mentioned, we've got loads of uh, really, really interesting events coming up. So please do check out the website. Please do sign up to the mailing list if you haven't already and you want to be kept up to date. So John, again, thank you so much. And uh, we hope to be seeing you soon. Thanks so much, Diana. And thank you everybody for joining.